Good morning, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Uh, before I begin, I feel that there is uh, a misperception about church that uh, I should take a moment to correct. Many people look on at church and look on at maybe even the people who come to church and assume that it's the place where strong people who have all of life worked out go along. There was a time where a fairly strict dress code was in place. Uh, looking out, that's long gone. Congratulations. And there was a certain dignity that went with that, and it all added to this great illusion about church, that it was for people who had their lives in very good order. I'm of the view that the last 14 months have forced that illusion to disappear, and hopefully forever. Because if you've come through the last 14 months and you feel as great as ever, then my friend, I take my hat off to you. Because for the vast majority, we carry scars from this last year. And no doubt there are some who still carry open wounds. Some carry grief. Some carry anxiety. Some carry a deep sense of loss. Some carry depression. Some are struggling to keep in their anger. And I want to say, in my humble opinion, this is the best place you can be today. A place like this. Because here, we will open God's Word and we will hear God speak. So that whatever our war wounds might be this morning, your Creator knows and he knows what you need. So let me start again. Welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. We are delighted that you're here with us today. Whoever you are, you are welcome. Welcome to those watching online as well. Let me say, my name is Duncan. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here. And what I want to do right now is to do what pastors do. I'm going to read from the Bible. And I'm reading from Revelation chapter 5, which is right at the end of the Bible, written by the Apostle John. And here he records part of what he saw when God gave him a glimpse into heaven itself. It's as if he gives us a reminder here of what the heavenly reality is. because sometimes what's going on here on earth can make us forget it. Listen to these amazing words John writes. He has seen this throne room of heaven. He's seen God on the throne, and he says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept 
because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain And with your blood, you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. It's almost literally breathtaking to read it. John sees into heaven, and the thing that stands out to him is there is these ever-growing circles of praise and worship to the Lamb who was slain to save us. Well, let's turn to our Bible reading for today, which you'll find in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. It's also printed in the church diary, if you picked one of those up on the way in. And uh, in this book of Isaiah, we're, we're being quite targeted in our approach, because towards the end of this book, um, Isaiah uh, reveals to God's people how he is going to comfort them, how he's going to rescue them from foreign captivity, which is what's going to happen to them, but more importantly, how he's going to rescue them from their sin, from this broken relationship that they have with God. He's going to restore them, but how? And as you read through uh, Isaiah, this, this figure keeps appearing who's called God's servant. He keeps cropping up, and it's through this person, the promised Messiah, that God's people will be brought back to him. And we've seen already that this Savior, he will be for all sorts of people. His mission will reach to the ends of the earth. And we've seen crucially that this servant is Jesus Christ, who some 700 years after these words were written, came to earth as Savior. And certainly this was Jesus' understanding of these passages in Isaiah. So we come to what is called the third servant song in Isaiah chapter 50, and Andrew's going to read those for us. 
Thanks. Good morning. This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins, you were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? With my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheek to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like I, have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. By now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go. Walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Amen. How did we end up like this? It's the sort of question you can imagine being asked in a relationship that has just gradually deteriorated over time, I suppose almost without anyone noticing. And suddenly, something happens to just waken things up. And they say, how did we end up like this? What happened? Well, that's the question that's being answered for the nation of Israel in the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 50, which Andrew just read. To a nation that will be very far from God. You know, a nation that was promised so much blessing at God's hand. Instead, they're going to be taken captive. They're going to be virtually enslaved again, deported from their own land. And they'll ask, how did we end up like this? Well, it seems that the people placed the blame for the problem firmly with God. Look at the question that God asks in verse 1. This is what the Lord says, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? God is asking, do you think that this relationship is broken beyond repair? 
Has something happened in this relationship? Have I done something that would mean that this could never be recovered? I mean, have I divorced you? Have I, have I formally separated from you that you could never come back? Or has someone stolen you from me and I, I just don't have the resources to be able to buy you back? Well, of course, the implied answer to the question is that there's been no divorce. Uh, God certainly has no creditors. No, the reason why God's people have been sold into captivity, you see still in verse 1, is because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. Together, these, these words, your sins, your transgressions, they, they sum up the full scope of the human problem. The problem is sin. It is sin in our hearts it is sin in the things that we do. And that's what he says is the problem here. This is how they got to where they are. Not because God has failed them in some way, and praise be, not because God is finished with them. And if that's the case, then God asks his own questions. Then why? Why was it, verse 2, when I came, that there was no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? It was Israel's sin that led to their ruin, and it was their unresponsiveness to God that meant that they continued in their shame. Oh, that they would remember who their God is. Look at how God describes himself. In verse 2, he's the one who, who dries up the sea, who made the river Nile like a desert when his people were trapped in slavery in Egypt. God is the one who sent the plague of darkness, verse 3. And so, understandably, God wonders, you know that I've done this for you before? You were enslaved in Egypt. I did all of this to rescue you, and yet you're unresponsive. I come to you, and you're not there. I speak to you, and you don't answer. Do you think I don't have the power to deliver you? And it's from that scene, from verse 4, that this servant of the Lord speaks. He pops his head up and, and sings a very different song. We see that uh, this is the servant, so he's not called the servant until you get to verse 10. We're told that that's who has been speaking. But more than that, we see in the words of this servant that he's presented as one who's very different from Israel in some very key ways. Where Israel has been characterized by unresponsiveness to God, God's servant is the perfect servant who responds to God. He's presented to us here as the true disciple. And the first thing I want to show you about him is that God's servant speaks God's word. God's servant speaks God's word. Look at this from verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue, says the servant, to know the word 
that sustains the weary. I'm sure we all have people or have known people who, who we feel like we can, we can go to if we need to just hear the right thing. There are those people in our lives, aren't they, who just seem to always know the right thing to say. They always know what we need to hear. And so we instinctively, I hope, know how beautiful a thing this is that the servant describes. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Back in the first of these songs, you'll find it in Isaiah 42, we saw that the, the, the demeanor of this Savior is that he wouldn't go breaking bruised reeds. He wouldn't snuff out faintly burning wicks. He would deal with the weary in a way that strengthened them, that restored them. He would deal with them with patience and compassion. And I would urge you, read through any one of the Gospels and just see this in action. One example that stood out in my mind is um, the, the occasion when one of the leaders from the synagogue came to Jesus because his daughter was back home seriously ill. And while he's with Jesus, word comes, your daughter has died. Don't bother the master anymore. Jesus Christ, who had received the well-instructed, the well-taught tongue, he turned to the broken-hearted man and simply said, don't be afraid, just believe. Now, what's so special about those words? I don't know. But he knew the word that would sustain the weary. And look through the Gospels at how the Lord Jesus interacts with people, how he doesn't speak to them in just a, a single way. He doesn't have just one message that he trots out. He, he knows the word that sustains the weary. And isn't that something we're glad of? That with patience and gentleness, he comes alongside the weary to sustain Indeed, he knew his own weariness. In the wilderness, we're told Jesus goes off into the wilderness for 40 days without any food, and the devil comes to tempt him. And Jesus, God's servant, knows the word that will sustain him in his weariness. And time and time again, that word was the words of Scripture. They sustained him. He knew them. This compassionate, gentle, weary, sustaining Savior says to anyone who will hear it, come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But where did this well-instructed tongue come from? Look at the rest of verse 4. For this remarkable insight into the life of the servant, uh, 
Um, the Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. You see, the words that he spoke to sustain the weary were the words that he had heard from the sovereign Lord. God's servant speaks God's words. This is a remarkable insight and something really worth thinking about because I think we often assume that because we rightly understand that Jesus Christ is God, we imagine that he came down to earth entirely pre-programmed with uh, all the translations of the Bible in his, in his head, already there, right at the tip of his fingers, even when he was in the crib. But the gospel writers never encourage us to think of him in that way. For example, Luke, he summarizes what happened through Jesus' childhood and into his teenage years like this. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew in wisdom. He wasn't pre-programmed in that sense at all. Instead, it's what was described here morning by morning. He was awakened by God. He spent time with his Father in heaven, and he was well instructed. And that repeated phrase about being well instructed does carry the idea, it's this, this language of, 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 I was discipled. He is the true disciple. It's not just that the servant speaks God's word, but in stark contrast to the nation of Israel, God's servant obeys God's word. God's servant obeys God's word. And you see this specifically in verses 5 and 6. Notice again, verse 5, where does it start? The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. That morning by morning, being well taught, and in response, what does he say? I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. Now, perhaps we would think of this as maybe the, the, the Lord was meditating on the Ten Commandments Morning by morning, he was maybe reflecting on those, and he was obedient to those. He um, kept the Sabbath holy, he never stole, he never coveted. And of course, there's something in that, that's true. But what we're presented with here is something that's much deeper for God's servant than simply reading a law and obeying it. He describes for us in verse 6 what it meant for him to be obedient to God's Word, for him not to be rebellious or turn away. What did it mean for him? Verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Now, who would ever embrace this? I mean, here the servant describes a flogging. He offers his back to be lashed. It's the punishment of a criminal. And one of those punishments that was designed for the one who received it to never, ever forget it. He is physically beaten. But then he also describes here being utterly humiliated, doesn't he? He mentions how he did not pull back his cheek from those who would rip out 
his beard. Back in the Old Testament, uh, you find uh, you find this in Nehemiah 13, if you're really interested to follow it up, that Nehemiah, he pulls out the beard of some guys to shame them for their lack of faithfulness to God. How interesting that here God's servant who he delights in would be obedient to God and he would suffer this shaming as if he was someone who was unfaithful to God. And I think we can all relate to the other part of the shaming there. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. To spit on someone is still about the most demeaning thing that could ever be done to them. And yet this is God's servant. And let me just emphasize again, what was it that made him submit to such horrific and humiliating acts? It was what came in through his ears, God's word to him. And certainly if we, if we take Luke's words seriously about how Jesus grew in wisdom, what we're to see is that as the Lord meditated on the word of God, he grew in his understanding of his mission as God's servant as the promised Messiah. It was surely in part as Jesus read these very words of Isaiah, as he read through these references to the servant, that the mission was clarified in his own mind. His was a mission of sacrifice that would end in rejection, injustice, and death. Now, how could he ever go through with that? Well, he tells us, verse 7, because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. It just seems so out of place, this verse. I don't know if you think that. This, but but it, it expresses things just so perfectly. I mean, here in verse 6, his, they spit on his face. And in verse 7, he says, I'll not be disgraced. I'll not be put to shame. You see, the servant has a different perspective to what we usually do. He sees what he will be subject to at the hands of men. And yet the servant's perspective is actually the only one that counts. While another man's spit is running down his beard, the Savior can still say, I will not be disgraced. I'll not be put to shame because God's servant has God on his side. God's servant has God on his side. That's what he says. It's because the sovereign Lord helps me. I'll not be disgraced. Look at how he goes on to verse 8. It's God who, who vindicates me. This was what Jesus tried to teach his disciples, though they often missed it. He taught them that he was going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'll rise again. 
and they seem to not be able to get past the rejection, the murder, and always seem to miss that the promise was there that on the third day he would rise again. He would be vindicated by being raised from the dead. His death on the cross was never going to be the end of the story. And so then the question is, as he asks in verse 8, he who vindicates me is near, who then will bring charges against me? Who will bring any charge against him? God's servant Jesus has this remarkable ability to see things as they truly are He knows that he is called by God. He knows that he is loved by God. He knows that he has been equipped by God. He knows that he's been helped to do the mission of God. And so, however hideous things might be for the servant, however painful, however distasteful, he knows that God will always be on his side and that God will see him through to the absolute completion of the mission to save people from their sins. I mean, four times in this song, God is referred to as the sovereign Lord. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, verse 9. That's the title of choice in this song, because the servant knows that God is sovereign over it all. And for that reason, he can, verse 7, set his face like flint that is, set a direction and be so hard and resolute that nothing will move him from his path. One of the most important verses in Luke's gospel is the one where Luke writes, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. More literally, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Despite all that he knew lay ahead for him, he set his face to go. I want to urge you to read what the gospel writers tell us about what happened in the last hours before Jesus was crucified. Let me give you a short sample and see how these words of Isaiah 50 run right through it. This is from Matthew 27. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling down before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. But I suppose we have to ask, to what end was all this done? I mean, what does this achieve? Why is this the very important mission of God? I mean, why would God want his servant, his son, why would he speak this into his ear and say, go through this, be obedient to this? Well, Jesus explains it in his own words. We're going to see this filled out in the fourth servant song, by the way, in a couple of weeks' time. 
But Jesus himself used this, this language from Isaiah of being the servant. And he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom, a payment for the release of someone who is in captivity. This is the way back to God through Jesus Christ. This is what Isaiah says to these to these uh, Jews who were heading into exile 2,700 and odd years ago. He said, the way back to be restored with God is through the Savior who will come, who will suffer and die. We often wonder, what, what do I have to do? What good thing, what religious deed must I do to make myself right with God? And the whole message of the Bible is to say that there isn't such a thing there is no deed that you can do. You need God's Savior, the true disciple of God. You see, He came as a human being to do this in our place. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, this is what He has done on your behalf. He has lived the life of perfect obedience to God, that you have not lived and could not live. And he has died the death on the cross that you and I deserve. And his triumph over death in the resurrection vindicates him, proves it. And when this song is concluded, and it actually probably concludes in verse 9, and there's a question that comes to everyone after that. It's as if Isaiah then asks for some questions. Now, you've heard the servant sing his song. What are you going to do? The question really is, are you with the servant? Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord? Well, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, look what he says. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Well, Isaiah then presents us with two visions for life. The first, you see, is a message to those who are in the dark. Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. He says, all you can do is acknowledge that you are in darkness that you've got nothing to light your way, and all you can do is cast yourself on God. Obey the voice of His servant. The alternative view of life is in verse 11. You can instead try and light your own torch. You see that? But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches. This is the DIY approach life. This is to reject any need for God, to go our own way, to say, of course we don't need God to make something out of life. I have everything I need here. And isn't that how most people in our society live? In fact, many are saying, wouldn't the world be a much better place if we got rid of the whole idea of God altogether? We don't need God. 
And we certainly don't need Jesus to live happy and fruitful lives. God says, go ahead. Do the DIY way of living. Light your own fires. Walk in whatever self-generated light you can produce. But understand this. This is where it ends. This is what you shall receive from my hand, he says in verse 11. You will lie down in torment. And it's as if the prophet here says, you know what? You probably will get through life using your own torch. But when you lie down, which is what every one of us will do one day, we will lie down for the final time. He said, you'll lie down in torment. You see, the stakes that we're dealing with here are more than what happens in the 70 years we might be granted. What are you going to do about God? The DIY way of living ends in disaster. These are painful words, aren't they? But they are necessary words because for all that we can do as a human race, and aren't we a, 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 a wonderfully talented bunch as human beings? But the one thing we can never do is deal with our biggest problem, which is our sin. It separates us from God. It demands God's judgment. It shuts us into that deep darkness. And the only way out is to receive the gift of God that He freely offers in Jesus Christ, His servant, His Son, our Savior. And the amazing thing that happens when we believe in Jesus is that we become joined to Him. What's His becomes mine. And what's mine in all of its darkness, becomes His. And so we want to be like Him. He is the true disciple, and He calls us to be His disciples, to hear His Word morning by morning, and to do it. And so we follow Him, we mentioned already, we follow him by being baptized. We, we, we publicly declare that this is, this is the faith that we have. We belong to Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you today. Maybe there's some who've put it off for long enough. Now's the time. He calls us to be servants like he is, to serve one another, to be part of the community of God's people and to prefer one another, to meet one another's needs, to be part of our wider community, to reach out with this amazing news that, of what God has done for us in our darkness in Christ. And what joy that we receive the promises of Christ. That perspective that the servant had in verse 8, he who vindicates me is near, who will bring charges against me? Well, that same assurance comes to you because you belong to this servant if you believe in him. Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul written to Christians. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If you're a Christian here today, I want you to be confident in this servant of God in whom you've placed your life's trust. This world may well pour shame and scorn on you for believing in Jesus Christ. But know this for sure, however much they may try to shame, you will never be shamed because it is God who justifies you. And not because of how great you are, praise God, but because of how great Jesus is and because you belong to him. It's the only safe place. Well, this uh, does bring our service to a close. I want to thank you for joining with us. I want to say if you want uh, to know anything more about what we do as a church or if we can support you in any way, then please do get in touch. And we're going to close by saying uh, the words of the grace, which really are just a prayer. We say these, the, the, these, uh, the words of this prayer to each other as we part. Let's do that together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us.